Father, we are so grateful for your word, which is life-giving. Jesus, you said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I pray that your word would fortify us, convict us, encourage us, change us, Lord. We do not want to just mail it in. We don't want to just check the box. We want to meet with you. So, Lord, would you manifest your presence here, speak to our hearts, and change us because you are worthy to be followed with all of our lives in the good, in the bad, in the in-between, all of it, you are worth it, and we want to follow you more faithfully because of what you tell us about following you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed this dynamic that Christians tend to look back on sin or evil that the, that the church um, smiled upon or at least co-signed or was silent on, Christians tend to look back on their blindness, church's past blindness, with incredible 2020 vision, with incredible clarity. But how often in the present we're blind to present evils, present injustice, and all the rest. It's just this crazy dynamic. And I call that dynamic the Corinthian effect. At the church of Corinth, they were letting culture infect them more than they realized. Now, I should qualify that fallen culture. There's beautiful, wonderful things about culture as we would expect because we're made in the image of God. But there's also a fallenness to culture. And I think the church at Corinth was letting the culture influence them more than they realize. That's the Corinthian effect. One commentator put it this way. Many in the Corinthian church believed in Jesus, yes, but had allowed the mindset and value of the world to influence them. These cultural lenses colored their view of the gospel, the church, and the world around them. They saw the power of God firsthand, had experienced deliverance, freedom, spiritual gifts, and on and on. Nevertheless, they defaulted to the mindset of the culture. We too can default to the mindset of the culture, right? This is the Corinthian effect. Specifically, as we saw last week, they were defaulting to the culture's twisted values of worldly wisdom and worldly power. And the result was, we saw this last two weeks, they were drifting away from the gospel, the biblical gospel of Christ crucified. They were growing in their compartmentalization of their faith, and it was allowing them to be infected by more and more and more issues, such as the thing he leads off with addressing the infection of division. So what Paul is going to do today in chapter 2 is he's going to drive home this singular point. Namely, he's going to tell them, you did not become Christians because of your worldly wisdom, but by the work of the Spirit. Next week, he's actually going to challenge them and say, you're not living up to that reality. You're acting, you're acting quite carnal. But this week, he's going to set them up by saying, listen, 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 listen. You didn't become a Christian through worldly wisdom, but by the work of the Spirit. And just by way of introduction, I want you to see how often Paul references the Holy Spirit 
in this second chapter, seven times. Maybe you like to mark up your Bible, you can circle the word spirit seven times. In verse four, Paul says, I preach to you in the demonstration of the spirit, use number one. Verse 10, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit, use number two. For the spirit searches everything, use number three. End of verse 11, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, number four. Use number five is in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit who's of the world, but the spirit who is from God, verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Use number six, and finally number seven, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. I want to speak to you about this, on this simple topic this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, by the Spirit. Two main divisions of this chapter. Division number one, Paul is saying in verses one through five, I preach Christ crucified to you by the Spirit. Let's look at that. Verse two of this first paragraph, Paul makes crystal clear the message that he preached of Christ crucified. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message. Now last week he really elaborated on that, end of chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, for the preaching of the cross, or Christ crucified, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I would say that verse 2 is not just the main artery through which the blood of this passage pumps, verse 2 is the main artery through which the blood of the Bible pumps. The Bible is about this message, Christ crucified. That was his message. In the rest of those verses, he gives the manner through which he delivered this message. And he begins negatively, that is, he begins by saying what he would not do and what he did not do. You can see it in verse 1. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He elaborates on that in verse 4 when he says, And my speech and my wisdom were not in plausible words of wisdom. And the idea there being worldly wisdom. Now what is Paul saying there? I wasn't trying to be persuasive. I didn't use lofty speech. What's he saying? Well, he's not saying he only used two-syllable words, right? He's not saying that he really dumbed things down. Read the book of Romans propitiation, right? That's in English, but it's a long word in the Greek too. He's got pretty detailed argumentation in the book of Romans, does he not? So he's not saying that. Paul is also not saying he didn't use persuasion in a godly sense. It says in the book of Acts, he reasoned with with Felix trying to see him come to Christ. He is not saying he didn't use passion. Do you remember Romans 9? He says, I wish myself were a curse for the sake of my kinsmen, my brothers who are Israel, uh, Israeli, the, his Jewish brothers and sisters, he was passionate. He said, I, I would stand in the place of God's wrath for you if I could. That's passion. He is not saying he didn't use creativity. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I've become all things to all people that I might win some. Nor is he even saying that he didn't use preparation. He didn't think ahead of time about what he was going to say at preaching time. 
because he told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Okay, so what is he saying when he said, I didn't come with lofty speech or worldly wisdom? What's he saying? I think he's saying this. He is saying he chose not to use speech as a tool to impress others with, unlike the flowery speech givers that would travel around Corinth and other places. He's saying he chose deliberately not to dive into the bag of manipulation and tricks to garner some kind of outward response, either by playing solely on the emotions or by sugarcoating the gospel or deleting some of the rough implications of the gospel. He chose not to do that. Now, I came across a sermon on this text preached by John Piper when he kicked off his nearly 40-year ministry in 1980 at Bethlehem Baptist. This is what he has to say about this text, out of this text. He says, my heart aches for the pastor who increases his own burden by trying to come up with ideas to preach to his people. As for me, I have nothing of abiding worth to say to you, but God does. And of that word, I hope and pray that I never tire of speaking. The life of the church depends on it. Watch out for the slick preachers who never mention these things, for whom the cross is a mere token symbol, for whom the exceeding sinfulness of our hearts is scarcely mentioned, who use power and wisdom and fame and luxury to beckon the self-centered American to consider himself Christian at no cost to his pride and self-sufficiency. Now Piper is addressing the manner of how one ought to preach, but also the message in that, that quote. Paul, coming back to the text, says, no, instead, and this is where he puts it positively, this is how I preached the message of Christ crucified. Verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Weakness, fear, much trembling. That's how he says he came. Now, what, why did he do that? Why was that as, was that some kind of like theatrical thing? I think I'll sound weak and fearful. And No, I think he preached that way because of the weight of the message. I think he preached that way because of the urgency he felt for the people, their need, the urgency of the hour to respond to Christ. It is appointed man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. And I think he was well aware of his own deficiency and insufficiency to even begin to be able to preach this message with power on his own. He, he really meant that, by the way. Because you go to 2 Corinthians 10, it's kind of funny, verse 10, he's quoting his detractors at Corinth, the people who weren't for him. And this is what they said about him. His letters are weighty, but his presence is weak. <laughs> How do you like that? And his speech of no account. They said that about him. Richard Baxter, 1,500 years later, embodied that when he said, when I preach, I preach as a dying man to dying men. Understanding the urgency of the message and our utter insufficiency to communicate that message in our own power. That's a far cry, is it not, from the glib, 
self-confident, super stylized, highly polished pulpiteer. Not Paul. Weakness, fear, much trembling. And that thrust him into the one direction he must go. My speech, verse 4, and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He chose to be dependent upon the Spirit. That's all he could do in his weakness, fear, and much trembling. And by power, I think it means preaching the pure, unadulterated message of Christ crucified. Because back in verse 17 of chapter 1, he talked about people who were robbing or emptying the cross of its power. How? By not preaching it in its fullness and its truth. He's saying, oh, no, no. I'm I'm not going to do that. I am not going to delete the power of the message by, and, and and listen, the message of the cross was culturally unpopular then because of twisted values of worldly wisdom, worldly power, and it's unpopular today. And so he said, I am going to preach the gospel in its pure, unadulterated form. Sometimes masses came, other times they kicked them out of the city, literally, Chased him out. We don't want that message. Well, I guess he, well, that wasn't too effective. He preached the gospel. And he said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, all peoples. And he knew that the only way then to communicate the power of a crucified Christ was an absolute dependence on the Spirit. Only way, only way, because it's culturally unpalatable. And Paul would probably tell us if he were here today, he had to learn dependence through weakness. It's hard for us to do that, isn't it? It's hard for us to learn dependence because we, we're told you've got to be self-dependent. It's hard to, to depend on something or someone outside of ourselves. And it takes suffering to get that in you. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. But he goes on to say, but we have this treasure, this treasure of the crucified Christ preached by the power of the Spirit. We have this treasure in various translations, clay pots, earthen vessels. Ain't much to them, right? Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. He goes on to say, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not abandoned. And he goes on to talk about how they suffered, but they were still (laughs) had the presence of God with them in that suffering. Bearing, he says, he ends that passage by saying, bearing in my body the sufferings of Jesus Christ, that I might demonstrate the life of Christ. Paul embodied that. A few of us are called to be preachers, but every single Christian here is called to be a proclaimer. Without a doubt. The way the kingdom advances, the way the church grows, the way God does his thing, is not primarily what happens right here, but what happens there. And and I would put myself there, what happens in our everyday lives. But let's be honest. 
It's intimidating, isn't it, sharing the gospel? Because it is culturally unpalatable. And it's not just intimidating for you, it's intimidating for me too in the opportunities that I have. Well, it's easy to do it right here for people who, at least you're coming, and you know this Christian church, right? And sometimes people say, well, listen, man, you talk about things that you're excited about. And that's true, right? So you might, you, you know, you might talk about your relationships, you might talk about a family member, a promotion, uh, a team, uh, something like that, because you're excited about it, right? And they would say then, well, if you're excited about the gospel, you'll talk about it. You ever heard that? And, and there's truth in that. There's truth in that. But that also fails to reckon with one reality. All of those things I just mentioned, relationship, family, promotion, team, whatever, culture will not see as foolishness or weakness, right? They'll probably bring their own story. Oh, that's cool. Let me tell you about my team or let me tell you about my relationship. The gospel is not like that. And so it's much easier to keep that excitement to ourselves, right? And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's okay then to share the gospel with a sense of weakness and fear and much trembling. You, you felt that way, right? Like, oh, I, I stuttered and I said the wrong thing and all that. Paul's saying that's how he came. Weakness and fear and much trembling. And the reason Paul did it that way, he tells us in verse 5, he says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul preached independence on the Spirit in both his message, Christ crucified, and his manner, a crucified preacher, because he wanted real conversions, not manufactured conversions. You're going to get enough manufactured conversions when you come that right way. You will. We see it in Scripture. Paul knew that real faith is lasting faith. Paul was going for, listen to me, he was going for enduring faith, not evaporating faith. A lot of people have evaporating faith. It's there for a season, then it's gone. It wasn't genuine conversion. Paul wanted enduring faith, not evaporating faith. And he knew this. He knew if someone could be manipulated into the kingdom, performed into the kingdom, soft-souled into the kingdom, they can get manipulated out of the kingdom, performed out of the kingdom, soft-souled out of the kingdom. Why? Because there's always somebody with better speaking skills. There's always somebody with craftier tactics. There's always somebody with better game and a more winsome presentation. And Paul knew faith that sticks around is saving faith. And the only way you get that faith is not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God in Christ crucified. So I think he's challenging all of us. He's asking you. He's asking me. Do I have an enduring faith? Root it. In the power of God? Or do I have an evaporating faith rooted in the wisdom of men? That's a good question, isn't it? Paul says, I preach Christ crucified, 
by the power of the Spirit. The other thing he tells us is this. You received Christ by the power of the Spirit. You received Christ crucified by the power of the Spirit. That's verses 6 through 16. It's like Paul is saying, I'll read verse 6 in just a second. It's like he's saying, y'all are so fixated on wisdom. Always talking about wisdom. Okay, fine. Let's talk about wisdom. Only it's going to be true wisdom, the wisdom of Christ crucified. I think that's the sense of verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And he goes on to call this wisdom in verse 7 a secret and hidden wisdom. And that's where a little bit of context helps. I think he's actually making a dig against some of these Corinthian believers. Believers. Because some of them were very elitist. They fancied themselves super brilliant, really smart people who were able to crack the code and figure out what they saw as deep secrets and mysteries. So Paul, I think, is saying, ah, we impart to you a secret and hidden wisdom. But the secret and hidden wisdom Paul is, not, is talking about is not something that you can figure out on your own. Like a Rubik's Cube. I couldn't figure out a Rubik's Cube for the life of me. Some of you could. Some of you have. You could crack the code on that. Or an escape room that people go to. You figure it out with the right clues. Paul's saying, this kind of mystery is not what I'm talking about. This is a mystery that you cannot figure out on your own. The wisdom of Christ crucified, decreed in eternity past, verse 7, is something that has to be revealed by God himself. Paul talks about that when he wrote the church at Colossae. He says, a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations in the past, God has now revealed to you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says in verse 8, none of the bigwigs of this age figured this out, otherwise they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. By the way, that tells you that you can tell whether someone is truly wise in the most robust sense, according to what they do with Jesus Christ. He says none of the rulers of his age recognized it. It wasn't revealed to them. So what he's saying is, to see Christ crucified, you have to have the Spirit open your eyes. You have to have the Spirit stir your heart. He has to open you up to Christ. And I've got a confession to make that I have mispreached verse 9 on more than one occasion at what kind of a ceremony? A funeral ceremony. You've probably heard verse 9 at a funeral, right? You know, the preacher will be talking about, you know, the departed person and, you know, they put their faith in Christ and they're with the Lord and, hey, this is what heaven's like. And they go to verse 9 and they say, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those that love him. That's where your, your, your beloved uh, father, mother, whoever is, if they trusted Christ. Now, it's terrible what good exegesis does to your sermons and the way you've misused verses. This verse is not primarily talking about heaven. Now, to be sure, heaven is far greater than we could ever imagine. So there's an application there. But in context, what he is simply saying is we can't access the mystery he's talking about of Christ crucified with our own senses. 
with our own wisdom. Instead, verse 10, he makes it clear, these things God has revealed to us, how? Through the Spirit. It is a work of the Spirit. If you have received Christ crucified, it's because there was a work of the Spirit of God in you and for you. That's what Jesus taught in John 3, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. She can't enter the kingdom of God. Verse 11 can be a bit confusing, so let me try to explain it best I can. Start with the first part. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in them? Let me put it this way. Who knows you best? You know you best, right? I mean, yes, we deceive ourselves, right? And the heart is deceitful above all things. But you know each other best. People can guess what you're thinking. And sometimes if we know somebody really well, we're, we're, we're often right. But the only person who can really say exactly what you are thinking right now is the person who's thinking in you right now, you. That's what he's saying. Now, follow it on. He says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So here's the point. Only you can really know you. Only God can really know God. So then that raises the question, well then how did I come to know God? Because I'm not God. How did I come to know the wisdom of God? Verse 12. He goes on to say, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things that are freely given to us by God. He's saying the spirit then works in us, the spirit of God, so we can understand the things of God with the, Christ, the cross of Christ at the epicenter. Does that make sense? And of course, human teachers are great gifts in every level. A family devotional time, a church worship time, sharing a, a scripture at work, wherever. That, that's, that has to happen. But the decisive factor ultimately is not a human teacher, but look at verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by who? The Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And that's, that's, that's the hope every time anybody shares scriptural truth is that the Spirit is at work in somebody's heart. Because when the Spirit's at work, boom, the light goes on. You've heard that description, like, I, this, I didn't understand any of this, and then boom, all of a sudden, I understood it. It wasn't your intellect. It was the gracious intervention of the Spirit of God. And every single conversion story, while different, is also exactly the same, and that at some point, as a person heard the gospel, the Spirit of God turned the lights on. I want to tell you one such story. His name was Greg Steyer. He grew up in North Denver in the 1970s in a tough, rage-filled family. He recounts, he learned later that his mother almost aborted him, but um, through the intervention of some relatives, carried him to term. But one of his earliest memories uh, is his mom seeing one of her husbands, she had several husbands in, in, in line, um, drive up, come up the driveway, and he remembers, earliest memory, his mom <laughs> grabbing a baseball bat, going out in the driveway, trying to beat him, 
crushing the windshield, the hood, and him just kind of driving off. And he remembers saying to himself, I better not ever get mom mad. She, his mom, a tough woman, had five brothers, his uncles, who were also rage-filled people. They were so filled with rage, these five brothers, even the formal local mafia called them, quote, those crazy brothers. These were bodybuilding street fighter types. One spent time in jail for choking out two police officers who came to arrest him for assault. Another one was arrested for beating a guy to death who stabbed his best friend. Tough, rage-filled family. Just trying to illustrate that. But unlike his tough uncles and his, his cousins, their kids, he was kind of a bookish sort. He really wasn't into that kind of thing, and he recounts he didn't really have a father to teach him self-defense. He was mocked, even by his own family. And one Christmas, when all the family came together, they'd open up all the gifts, his Uncle Jack said, hey, I've got a special gift for Greg. Now, Greg would usually hang out in the shadows in a corner because he didn't want to get any attention to him. He didn't want to be mocked. But for a second, his heart rose. Oh, a special gift for me from Uncle Jack. Uncle Jack was a tough dude, combat vet, golden gloves boxer, all of that. And he opens up that present, and that present is a doll, a little doll. And his Uncle Jack said, I figured that since you don't have a dad, maybe you like to play with dolls like a little girl. And he said he was humiliated beyond words. And he actually became so filled with rage, he, he threw that, that, that doll right back in Uncle Jack's chest, to which everybody gleefully said, well, maybe he's one of us after all. He does have some rage inside of him. But he recounts that day, that low, low, low point spurred a search for the question we all ask, who am I? What's my identity? Who am I? Why has God put me on this earth? Do you ever wonder that question? Everyone around you is wondering that question. We've all wondered that question. His grandparents gave him a Bible. He started reading it. He would read it behind the couch. Sometimes he says he would go into the kitchen sink with a flashlight and read it. He says, I couldn't pronounce most of the words. I didn't understand the whole lot, but I just, I just really believed this book had the answers I was looking for. His grandparents started taking him to church, but he was still confused because Sunday school teachers would stay, say stuff like, invite Jesus into your heart. And I'm like, what does that even mean, invite him into my heart? And, but he kept on going. He went to big church one Sunday, and the pastor very simply talked about Christ crucified for our sins and that you need to trust in him. And he says, this is what he says, it clicked Suddenly, it made sense. And there, at the young age of nine years old, he put his faith in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? You tell me. What happened? The Spirit of God moved in his nine-year-old heart. That's exactly what happened. And by the way, the Spirit moved mightily through that family. One by one, his uncles came to Christ, even mean Uncle Jack. After he came to Christ, he brought over 250 people to church in one month. That's what happens when the Lord storms somebody's heart. One by one, even, even, the, even the guy, his uncle that killed the guy, manslaughter for stabbing his friend, he, in the back of a police car, turns his life over to Christ. Story after story after story. But his mom, she was a tough nut to crack. 
She just was so filled with guilt for all the things that she had done. He's now 17. He's been walking with the Lord eight years as a young person. And by the way, sometimes we feel like people are way beyond God's grace, but no one's beyond God's grace. He came home one day. He's 17 years old. He says, Mom, please go to the kitchen. Why? Just go to the kitchen. I want to talk to you about the Lord again. And he went through the gospel like he had many times before. And she said, but I've done too much for God to forgive me. And he, again, he just, he, just, he just gave her the gospel promises that he's, she's, he's able to forgive anyone. And his mom right there trusted Christ. That was the spirit going snap, 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 snap. Now, he had to, be, he had to share the gospel, right? He had to read the Bible for his own conversion, but at the end of the day, the Spirit of God moved. And he's got a wonderful ministry today called Dare to Share. Now, back to this text. Paul is reminding them and reiterating and emphasizing the truth that they trust in Christ because of the work of the Spirit in their life. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural person, literally the person without the Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Number one, they're folly to him. You believe that stuff? You're a fool or you're gullible or whatever, right? It's, it's foolishness. Second reason, he's not able to understand them. He just doesn't have the apparatus to understand spiritual truth. That's why the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God with Christ crucified at the epicenter. And then he says, because they are spiritually discerned. What does that mean? Meaning, spiritual things can only be discerned or understood if you have spiritual capacity. So a person without the Spirit can no more understand spiritual truth than a person without Russian language training can understand the Russian language. Now, over time, such a person maybe could parrot a few phrases, right? Not really understanding. And I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that people parrot Christian stuff but have not been invaded by the life of Christ yet. He says the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, if you want to be a smart aleck, the next time someone tries to come at you with, judge not lest ye be judged, you say the spiritual person judges all things. Now, I don't think I would do that unless it was a friend of yours. And, you know, both of those are misuses of Scripture. What's he saying here? He is saying that the spiritual person, meaning the person who has the spirit, so that would include them if they're saved, judges all things. And the word judges has the actual idea of discerns or understands, okay? Context. Understands all things, it says. Well, again, context, probably not quantum physics, okay? But gospel realities, and he is judged by no one, meaning he's not understood by a natural person, a person without the Spirit. The world, that's why the world thinks you're an enigma. That's why you're different. The world can't understand a Christian. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That's, that's the idea there. Now he ends in verse 16 with a quote from Isaiah 40 and verse 13. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And that question begs an answer. What's, what's he wanting the church at Corinth to say to that question? 
He's asking him a question based on Isaiah 40, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. And who is the one? What's he hoping they're going to say? Well, we have. We're alive in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And he would say, that's right. You have the Spirit. The only one who makes the message of Christ crucified intelligible is the Holy Spirit. And he did that for you. I was there when he did that for you. So don't go away from that truth. Only the Spirit of God can open your eyes to the Son of God. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, when he says, no one can call Jesus Lord but by the Spirit. Now, next week, he is going to make the point. He's going to be, it's pretty strong next week. He says, you're acting like babies. You're not acting like, you're not acting like the natural person. He, he introduces the third category, the carnal person. You're not acting like you have the Spirit. And maybe, maybe it would be good just before we go to the Lord's Supper to ask the question, am I acting like I have the Spirit? But most of all, I want us to focus as we go to the communion on the kindness of God in your life that caused the cross to be comprehensible because the Spirit of God worked in your heart. That should make us really grateful, right? Because I, <laughs> left to my own, I will continue to reject God. That's, not, that, that, that's a function of my hardness, right? That's a function of my blindness. That's a, that's a function of my self-centeredness. Left to my own, the message of the cross would be whatever. That's cool for you, whatever. But if Jesus Christ is precious to you, the only reason he's precious to you is because the Spirit of God worked in your heart. And that ought to break us down, right? That ought to break us down. Doesn't answer all of life's questions. Doesn't take away all the issues in your walk. But it should break us down and get us back to the foot of the cross. Because the only reason when I survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died the only reason I can say my riches gain, I come but loss and pour contempt on all my pride is because the Spirit of God worked in my heart. Has that happened for you? Then you should praise God for it. And if that's not happened for you, well, the Lord gives this. He says, whatever light you have, you turn into that light, and if you turn in that light, He will give you more light. And who knows but that you will be able to celebrate communion with us.